Karma Productions Worldwide, in association with NMD Plus Productions in London and the William Mills Agency, presents Bankadelic from Money 2020, a series of special podcast episodes that feature interviews with some of the people who are making the financial services world and fintech rock. I'm your host, Lou Carlozo, inviting you to sit back, grab a cuppa, and join us for the conversations that took place at one of the premier financial services conventions in all the world. Greetings, podcast fans, and welcome once again from Money 2020. Lou Carlozo, the host of Bankadelic here, and want to take a second to thank the William Mills Agency and Scott Mills, who's here with me at Money 2020. We are making the rounds and learning a lot and having a great time. And one of the things about Money 2020, for those of you who have been here or haven't been here before, is you just never know who you're going to run into that you've never met before, but suddenly you feel a connection. And that is exactly what has happened to me today and with the person I'm about to introduce to you who has some incredible things to share about what he is doing in the financial services world. Please meet Ahan Sarkar. Ahan is the general manager of Helix, and he leads the organization, which is a group of 150 plus, and I'm gonna use his word, it's a great word, wonderful people. They are wonderful. <laughs> They're wonderful, right? <laughs> Building the Helix platform, and that empowers innovative companies to build personalized, empathetic banking products that today serve more than 12 million people. Wow. Across the country, the mission of Helix, as Ahan describes it, is to make finance human. And if you want to find out more, go to Helix, H-E-L-I-X dot Q, the letter Q, to the number two dot com. Han, welcome to Bankadelic. Thanks for having me, man. It's honestly, it's been a pleasure and we haven't even started. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, we're, we're going to get in something about your music as well because I, <laughs> I, I love spot. people who are so multidimensionally creative. But the first thing I want to hit is this make finance human. Yeah. And that is something that a lot of people will talk that talk, but they can't walk that walk. And the little bit I know about the company, you guys are doing some incredible things. Tell me why it's more than just a slogan, why it's important to you, and how you are trying to make that visible in the work you do. For sure. I think that's a really good question. And when we sat down and we tried to think about what brand we wanted to create to sort of call this business and how we could tie together the things that all of our different customers were doing, uh, at, at first it was a little bit of a challenge, right? Because if you look at infrastructure companies in the, in the banking as a service space, you're going to see, you know, systemize your payments, or you're going to see uh, move money faster, or you're going to see uh, revolutionize banking, right? And what does that even mean, right? It's, it's kind of hard to know. And every single day when you're getting up and you're trying to build something brand new, is that what's going to get you out of bed? Is, is systemizing <laughs> payments going to be the thing that... It gets me out of bed every morning. You and I are different, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> but the more we thought about it, the interesting thing about our business is we are not a uh, rinse and repeat standard products business. That's not what we do. Um, our belief is that we should live in a world where 
the diversity of products is the same as the diversity of people. Uh, in a world where we build products around people instead of fitting people into legacy products. And a world in which no matter how much money you have or where you live, you should have access to free banking services. And the interesting reality of that is that all of our clients took a very different angle to solving that problem. So what Credit Karma built and what Betterment built and what Gusto built and what Acorns built are actually meaningfully different. And so, you know, as an infrastructure company, it's our job to stay behind the scenes. Right? I yeah. kind of don't want people to know who we are. I want them to know why Credit Karma is amazing. I want them to know why Gusto is amazing. And so when we thought about what is our mission, why are we here, and what is the unifying thread across all of those companies, suddenly it clicked where we realized, oh, while they all may be doing different things, we're all just trying to make this financial system a little bit more human, right? Because until now, consumers have kind of been a cost of deposits for financial institutions. I hate to say that, but that's the truth. And if you really think about it, the banking system is the fabric upon which the economy is built and is the fabric upon which we live as people. And so the question we kept asking ourselves is, how do we make that a little bit more personal, a little bit more like a personal relationship where someone can help you get to where you're trying to go instead of just trying to sell you a product that you probably don't need? So a bit of a long story, but that's kind of no, how we ended there. A fabulous one. And it reminds me of something that I think we're going to hear a lot about at Money 2020, but is also the supreme irony is that it's taking the technology, the AI, the machine learning, things that people normally classify as being very cold and inhuman to really make finance more personalized 100%. than ever before. 100%. And you know what's crazy? We're the last ones to be doing this. If you look at what happened in the tech industry over the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, what you'll find is every single successful tech company, bar none, builds the product experience entirely around the person. And that's why if you and I log on to Netflix, I guarantee even if we may have similar interests, we're going to see different pictures and we're going to see different texts. If you and I log on to Facebook, we're going to see different people's content. If we log on to Amazon, we're going to be told to look at different kinds of things. And that's because each of those companies over the last however many years you've been using them has been learning and listening to you. So why is it that today if you go walk into a bank and you say, hey, I want a product, you get A or B, and A is the free one, and B is the premium one, and the question that determines if you get A or B is, how much money do you have? Yes. That's crazy. That is crazy. It is crazy. And to that end, another reason why in the short time that we have been talking and bantering back and forth, I am blown away by this idea that for you, this all connects to the underbanked. Yeah. It connects to people who are outside of the financial system. Tell us about what your view of that is vis-a-vis -vis the work that you're trying to do with Helix. For sure. I'm going to first answer a question you didn't ask, which is, why does the financial system exist? The financial system exists to facilitate the economy, and the goal of the economy in a country is the betterment of its people, mm -hmm. right? Is the prospering of its people. Yes. People forget that sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they, they think of the economy as kind of like this machine, but if you trace back the economy to the very early days of barter systems, right? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it was to help people get somewhere they couldn't go by themselves. Mm -hmm. So you fast forward hundreds and hundreds of, sorry for pulling that cable, you fast forward <laughs> hundreds and hundreds good. of years, and today you, have tens of millions of people who are 
either left by the wayside by the financial system and are left to kind of fend for themselves or are explicitly to some extent taken advantage of by financial institutions. One of the things that is the craziest to me is the people who pay the bank fees, the most bank fees in the United States, are the people who can afford it the least. Yes. And there's this amazing book, slightly depressing, but amazing book called Nickel and Dimed um, that talks about I'm familiar with that book. how expensive book. Yeah. it is to be poor in America, right? Because think about a construction worker, right? This, this book talks about this example where as a construction worker, the single most important thing that you own, arguably, is your pair of boots because you're going to use them every single day and that is what is going to keep your feet intact. And if you buy a good pair of boots, it'll last you a decade or longer, mm -hmm. right? And it'll take care of your feet and your feet won't have challenges in the future. But if you don't have a lot of money and you can't afford a good pair of boots, what do you do? You buy the cheapest pair of boots that you can find on clearance and every season you have to replace them. Yes. And so you end up spending more on the boots and your feet go to waste because those boots don't have the same support as a truly good pair of boots. The financial system is just like that. Yes, it is. Where if you don't have money, you're going to trigger the overdraft charges. You're going to trigger the NSF fees. And if you think about it, and we've actually traced it all the way back, why do companies, why do banks charge people those fees? It actually comes down to the technology. Here's a story about that was that I used to work for a banking nonprofit, talk about a non sequitur. It was an industry group. And one of the people on the board of directors was from a major bank. I won't say which one. And he's like, blibbity, blobbity, blah, customers come first, blah, 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 blah. We love our customers. Bibbidi, blah, 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 blah. We're here to serve our customers. And I raised my hand and I said, if that's the case, why do you charge service fees? Because everyone hates them. And he got really upset, like his face turned red. And, and after about 30 seconds of him stammering or whatever, he said, people don't realize that we're providing them a service. And I'm just shaking my head because I'm thinking, you tell me that you love paying fees. Nobody likes paying fees. And it is the one thing that everyone knows that it's tremendous source of passive income for financial institutions, number one. And number two, there's no one who pays a fee that doesn't think I'm being ripped off. And yet the banks at the same time want to convey this message that we care about our customers. I just don't get it. It's total cognitive disconnect for me. Well, and it's interesting too, right? Because if you go back 25 years, banking wasn't free. You used to pay a subscription fee every yeah. single month. But you know what? You paid that subscription fee and then you got to use your banking services with no issues. You didn't get charged if you ran out of money. You just wouldn't enable that transaction. And that makes you kind of ask the question of, well, how did we get here? Yeah. How did we get to this world where now we're charging people? And it's actually kind of interesting, right? Because if you track it back, you realize Discover introduces that free checking account. Mm -hmm. Free checking becomes standard. Everyone races to get to free checking and then suddenly realizes we live in a, in a country today where half of people don't have $500 in savings. And banks, naturally, make their money by leveraging those deposits and going and making loans and making interest on those loans. And banks' primary costs, aside from headcount and marketing, are technology, right? And so if you, you double-click into that and you say, huh, why is this the case that we have to charge all of these fees? What you realize is, in a world where legacy core providers charge you between $3 an account per month all the way up to $12 an account per month, depending on how complex it is, the math actually doesn't work out, even if you have $1,000. Like, just doing some quick math. You have $1,000. And let's pretend, in this example, you don't hire anybody. 
You don't spend any money on marketing. You don't spend any money on branches. The only two things you pay for are cost of capital and the cost of technology. You have $1,000. If, and let's assume, even though checking accounts cost more, let's assume it's $3 per account per month. So it's $36 a cost. On $1,000 cost of capital, it'll be about 10 bucks. So $46 I'm spending. Mm -hmm. Net interest margin in the US is 3%. So on that 1,000 bucks, I'm earning $30. So I'm losing $16 on you, despite the fact that you have twice the amount of money that half of Americans can't even get in their, in their bank account. So you tell me, if you're the bank, you're looking at this equation and going, oh my God, in a world without these kinds of fees, I fundamentally lose money on these customers. And the tragedy of it is, it comes down to the business model of the technology, which is the most unobvious thing that you would think about. But when mm -hmm. you drill down, you find that's the case. And that's a big part of why we exist. One of the things that we did that has been a 14 year journey to get to this point, was rebuild the core from scratch in the cloud. And part of that was for scale. Part of that was for flexibility. Part of that was to be able to innovate. But a big part of that was to foundationally change the business model of banking. So for us, as an example, we will charge maybe a quarter per user per month versus $3 per account per month. So first of all, you're gonna have as many accounts as you like. But in the same example, you are now paying $3 for technology you are now paying $10 cost of capital. You're still making it 30 bucks. So now you're making $17. So nothing changed except for the technology. And you went from minus 16 to plus 17. What that does is it changes the incentive structure. Because if you go back to our claim, to your or the original question of a lot of people talk the talk, right? But do yeah. they walk the walk? Mm -hmm. To walk the walk, it must be intrinsic in your business model. And you must catalyze a change in society such that the, rise, the rising tide raises all ships, so to speak, right? Yeah. And so that's why over the last six years, we've been able to partner with all of these companies and we've seen collectively as a society, an incentive to serve people who don't have a lot of money because for the first time, you can build a sustainable business by doing that. Yeah. That to me is what matters. It's really remarkable. And I'm glad you brought a lot of that up because it made me think that to clarify, when I was uh, mentioning fees, it had to do with the fees that you might get to use an ATM mm. and they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. And it is also the perception around the fees. If banks or financial institutions do a good job of explaining why those fees are necessary and how they're losing money, then the context changes. But more to the point of changing context, it sounds like you have really hit upon a way of addressing banking as a service that mm. can make that old framework irrelevant because there's a new one here. In the banking as a service world, there's so many different ways that companies are approaching it and services they're trying to provide. What's your particular flavor? Tell me a little bit more about how Helix is working in the cloud and you've talked about some of the things you're, you're bringing into it. What else might we not have covered so far? That's a great question. I, I think to answer what we focus on, you kind of have to understand first the way in which we're different. Because unlike when we got into the space six, seven years ago, today there are a lot of banking as a service companies. And today, if you're new to this space, it's not necessarily clear how they are different, right? Mm -hmm. Just about every other platform other than Helix is what is ultimately called middleware. 
which is it's an API layer that is sitting on top of some kind of legacy system. Yeah. And that comes with a lot of advantages. It means you can go broad pretty quickly because if the legacy core does it, you can basically wrap it and offer it. Yeah. It means that you can lower the cost structure. It means that you can provide a near real-time experience. But the important thing to remember is you never changed what was underneath, right? So what you've created is a faster and easier way to access standardized, rigid products. We took the approach of rebuilding that core from scratch, which took a long time honestly. Mm -hmm. And we had to do all the hard stuff like reconciliation and automation and all that kind yeah. of stuff. But what that has afforded us the luxury to do is to one, focus on partnering with large clients that have existing products and have the opportunity to build something that has never existed before by combining the fundamentals of banking into their product. And then two, it's allowed us to operate at scale in a way that's very difficult to do. Um, as a middleware platform. And so over the last five, six years, it's interesting that you asked the kind of flavor, like flavor question, right? Because I think for some providers it's vanilla and some providers it's cookies and cream. Mm -hmm. For us, we're kind of like Baskin Robbins, right? <laughs> and what I mean by that is Credit Karma is different from Gusto, is different from Acorns, is different from Rocket Mortgage, is different from um, uh, Betterment, right? And that's because what we try and do, and you'll see this if you go to our website, is build differentiated products that scale. Because it's our belief that you can launch a standard product in six months, but if 5,000 other people can launch that product, then all you did is just waste a bunch of time and waste a bunch of money to launch something that nobody's gonna use. So every time we partner with a new client, the question that we ask ourselves is, what are we gonna build that's new? What are we gonna build that really solves somebody's problem? And most importantly, and I think this is where the untapped potential is in embedded finance, how do we take what it is that you already do and combine banking with it to make something that the world hasn't seen before, as opposed to attaching some sidecar offering onto your business exactly. that is a banking product that nobody wants? So when you mention that, A, that sounds exciting. B, I'm trying to imagine what that might look like as an example. So maybe give me an example of something that addresses that point, like, okay, you're injecting these services, these things you do into something that a company does that isn't necessarily banking and you create something powerful. What might that look like? I'm going to immediately call out one of my favorite examples of this, which is Gusto. Um, so um, we love the Gusto team. They are, they are fantastic. And Gusto is one of the largest payroll providers for small businesses. Mm -hmm. We'll come back to Gusto in a second. Yeah. But let's first talk about a small business. When you're a small business employee, what it what is your biggest problem? Well, today, post, <laughs> I say post COVID, in air quotes, I suppose, mm -hmm. um, post the initial era of COVID. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I need my booster, by the way. Uh, you and me both. <laughs> part of me is a little terrified to be here because of how many people are here. And I'm like, should I have gotten that booster before? Anyway, back to this. 62% um, of Americans, at least the last that we saw, are living paycheck to paycheck in this yes. post COVID world. And if you are making, let's say, $28,000 a year, when your tire pops and you were living paycheck to paycheck, you are out of luck. You need to have some cash that you do not have because half of Americans don't have savings. So what do you do? You go to someone that's going to lend you the money. But wait, you don't make a ton of money and you're a pretty risky customer. So who's the lender that's going to actually lend to you? A payday lender. Yes. And what's that payday lender going to do? Because you bring a whole bunch of risk into the equation. Charge you a lot of interest, right? Because yep. there are going to be other yous that don't pay back their bills. And ultimately, this business needs to survive. And so they'll charge you that large interest. One of the questions we ask a lot is why? Why is that the case? Right? Why, why do I have to take risk on you? 
So you ask that question, why, why does the payday lender have to take risk on the person? It's because they don't know the person. They don't know if you're still yeah. working. They don't know if you've worked this week. They don't know how much you've gotten paid. And so naturally, because they don't know any of those things, they have obviously less confidence about the potential to repay, and so they have to charge a higher interest rate to survive. You know who does know who you are and how much you get paid? Who? Your payroll company. That's right. All right. <laughs> and so, okay, problem number one, people are cash-strapped living paycheck to paycheck. They've already earned the money, but they can't access it. That's leading them to payday lenders. That's eating up more than a quarter of their income and putting them into a downward debt spiral. Okay, problem number one. Problem number two, what problem does that create for small businesses? Well, if my employees can't afford to live, they need to find another job because I'm probably not able to pay them enough. And so what that ends up creating is a ton of churn and employee unhappiness. If you are financially stressed, you cannot bring yourself 100% to work every day because you're worried about who's gonna put the dinner on the table. And so employers across the country are seeing significant churn as more and more people live paycheck to paycheck. That's problem number two. Problem number three, let's look at, let's look at a payroll company. Believe it or not, and I had to learn this, Payroll inherently is no longer a deeply profitable business. When it started, it was because you could make this thing really simple. But then a whole bunch of people jumped in the, into the realm. Yeah. And then payroll just became a loss leader to sell benefits, right? Because at the end of the day, what is the payroll business? You're basically just sending ACHs, right? You're taking money from the employer, you're moving it into another account, and then you're moving it from that account to the individual's account. And without getting too deep into the weeds, ACHs, you have to pay more when you don't have visibility into the end account because there's greater risk sending an ACH into an unknown account. There might be some kind of R10 or something like that that you have to deal with. ACH return for those that are uninitiated in the world yes. of ACH mm -hmm. codes. So, okay. So there's this interesting third challenge of how do you make payroll a profitable business? So how do you solve all three of these problems at the same time? Well, it turns out if you create what Gusto created, which is Gusto Wallet, right? And you have the position that Gusto has, which is as a payroll provider, who mm -hmm. has all the information about who you are, who trusts you because you've been there for years, who knows how much you've earned and how much you've worked to date. You can release something like Gusto Cash Out, which lets people access the money that they have earned already instantly for free without taking any interest because they don't take the same kind of risk. Personalization. Exactly. Right. And if over time I learn that, oh, hey, you can you consistently we, we consistently get our money back every single time we, we front you the money that you have already earned. Well, now let's say you need to get access to money that you haven't yet earned. Well, there's trust there. There's understanding there. I don't mm -hmm. have to treat you like a number, right? And so today, Gusto Wallet's been live in market with Gusto Cash Out, which they built separately, for north of a year. And I don't believe I'm allowed to share the stats of the number of users on it, but I'll <laughs> say it's achieved scale without a doubt. Mm -hmm. And they're receiving so much positive feedback from those employees who no longer have to go to a payday lender and lose 25% of their paycheck, from those employers who no longer have the same level of churn because their employees are happier. And then guess what? If you initiate the payroll into that account and that individual can go spend it, and then you earn a percent back of the spend that they put on the card, Suddenly, you are earning, let's assume you get paid $1,000 every two weeks. Every time that you disperse it, you know they're going to spend it because they need to, you're going to earn a percent of that $1,000. You're going to earn $10, right? Every two weeks. And that means that you can actually give back some of that value to the customer and still build a sustainable business, right? And so what happened here? 
yes, we embedded a bank account and we embedded a debit card. Amazing. Mm. But the thing that's really amazing is that Gusto could use its position as a payroll provider to hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Americans and solve a fundamental risk challenge that is otherwise unsolvable, um, allowing them to give these consumers access to their cash instantly for free, right? And help these employers kind of grow their, their business. Yeah, it's really amazing because not everybody who is in a certain financial situation is the same and people have been scratching their heads for a long time saying well we kind of know that but how do we tell this person from that person and we're really just talking about taking data that's already out there and people who are known within a certain system and saying we can connect the dots and oh okay we know you're not like other people who may be in the situation because there's already a relationship there. We just had to identify it and leverage it. Um, really, 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 really cool stuff. Now, as we wrap up, and of course you and the podcast audience can't necessarily see, but you are really young. You're, you must be in your <laughs> 20s. How old are you, if you don't mind my asking? I don't mind you asking. I'm 28. The amount of energy and passion and knowledge and vision you have is remarkable. I think you're giving me too much credit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're here, you know. Um, I appreciate it, though. I'm just wondering what drives you, because you're clearly, you could be passionate about a whole bunch of other things, and and you are, right? You're a musician (laughs) as well. I promised, actually, we would mention that, too. So maybe before we totally wrap up, I want to know a little bit more about that. But what? why this? Why financial services? Why what Helix is doing to you personally? Like, why is this important? Why does it get you going? I think it's because it's one of the biggest problems in the world that affect people and their ability to live their lives. My family immigrated to the U.S. when I was very young. Uh, and I grew up without a lot of money. Having met people who've lived in poverty, I cannot say that we were in that situation, but I can say that my family had to find their way through this Mm -hmm. financial system, Mm -hmm. Uh, and at times that was really difficult. Uh, And then after college, uh, I went to go work at this wonderful company uh, called Bridgewater Associates, Mm -hmm. which is uh, one of the world's largest hedge funds. Talk about a stark contrast, because here I was looking at people who, and I did the math, in one minute made more than the average American made in an entire year. Wow. One minute. And I learned an unbelievable amount there, but I couldn't shake this feeling that there were so many people that would not only never see this world, that lived the opposite side of reality. And... It just, it felt so unjust to me, you know? And so when I dove into this business, and I was lucky enough to be in the early days of us starting this banking as a service business, which is how I ended up here. Mm -hmm. What was fascinating to me is what we said at the beginning of this podcast is understanding why that is the case, right? People do things for a reason. Um, They're not fundamentally good or fundamentally bad. They do things because of how the world is set up, right? And in this case, something as simple as technology costs can change the way that tens of millions of people are treated. How crazy is that? Yeah. Right? And so, you know, I think I live my life with the goal of positively impacting as many people as possible. And when you want to do that, 
and sometime off this podcast, I'll tell you about the other things that I'm interested in. But like <laughs> when you want to do that, you ask yourselves, what are the biggest problems that people deal with? And the, num- the top two fears that people have above death are finances and public speaking. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to solve public speaking. <laughs> but finances affect every person across the country. And today we're focused on the U.S. just because there's already so much to fix um, in, in this economy. But if you zoom out, we have it pretty good. Yes, we do. There are billions of people who have it worse than you, whoever you are listening on this podcast. I guarantee it. And so what gets me out of bed and what gets, as you said, the 160 people plus on my team out of bed is the idea that they can do work for a few months and overnight they can improve the lives of what is today 13 million people. That is amazing. That is amazing. And really, and I am wearing a hat, (laughs) <laughs> Hats off to you. Uh, I promised I would ask this question. I'm trying to think how I can connect it yeah. to what we've talked about. But as sure. a real visionary genius who was interviewed in a book called The Brain Changes Everything by Norman Deutsch said, I can connect anything to anything. So let's give this a shot. <laughs> I'm okay? here for it. You're a musician. Yeah. I, first of all, would love it if you told me a bit about the music, what you do. And then also... You know, as creative human beings, we don't exist in a void. No. And maybe what your music teaches you or how it connects to what it is that you're doing with Helix. That's a really interesting question that I've never had to answer before. So this is going to be my best attempt, is what I'll tell you. Go for it. First and foremost, that quote from that person is hilarious um, because... One of the things I tell my team, we hire a lot of people from outside of banking, right? Uh, and one of the things I tell them, because they show up and it's like drinking from a fire hose, right? Learning yeah. the entire financial system at once. And it can be very daunting and there can be that feeling of like, am I in the wrong place? Like, should I not be here? And uh, I always do a new hire with everybody on their first week. Um, and I, I let them ask any question they want and I talk to them and we, we go through everything. But one of the things I remind those people is you actually have a huge advantage um, because the best innovations in the world happen when you take something that is maybe commonplace in one area, one industry, one way of thought, one philosophy, and you connect it to something completely different to find something that nobody ever had before. Yes, right? exactly, and exactly. I, I think that those are the most satisfying moments in the world, and those moments have happened so many times across our team um, that I feel privileged to work with those people. To answer your music question, uh, so um, my wife and I are actually both musicians. I would say she is much more talented than I am, uh, but we've been making music together um, since 2014, actually, which is kind of crazy. Um, but we haven't put anything out except for this one acapella song I put out. Uh, if you want to find it, you can find it. I'm not going to tell it to you. Um, <laughs> but uh, sometime next year, uh, we'll be releasing this project that we've been working on for the last six years. Um, and it's a, it's a project that covers a lot of different genres, a lot of different ideas. Um, and I hope my wife is okay with me telling you the title, but I'll tell it to you anyway. Um, the album is called Duality. Wow. Um, Because what we've realized uh, is that when you grow up, everyone tells you that the world is black or white. And the more you go through life, the more that you realize that could not be further from the truth. (laughs) That everything is actually a shade of gray, uh, and your ability to see the shade of gray is a derivative of your ability to understand the black and understand the white. And there are many shades of gray. Exactly. Uh, A near infinite number of shades of gray. And... What we've also found is that there are some things in society that 
are two contradictory things at the same time, right? The, the feeling of, for example, being in this industry at one point in time can be exceptionally daunting, sometimes terrifying, sometimes deeply ambiguous, and sometimes you're standing there being like, are we going to be able to do this? Like, are we crazy for thinking that this can happen? Until mm-hmm. the sun comes up and you, so you make something that has never existed and it impacts millions of people across the world and then you feel this sense of kind of euphoria, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And what you have to realize is that those are just two sides of the same coin, yes. right? So, so the song that I'll show you after this, the second song on the album, covered, like, captures that duality, right? The duality of, I, I don't know if you've ever been surfing, um, but... Uh, there's a group of surfers called Dawn Patrol, right? When you mm-hmm. go out before the sun is up and you swim out in the water and you haven't eaten because uh, you don't want to throw up on your surfboard, right? And so you're nauseous and you're tired and you're cold and you can't see anything and there's salt water in your eyes and you're kind of like, why am I here? <laughs> Until the sun comes up and there's no one else on the water and you get to ride the glassy ocean to the end and you have an instant core memory because you suffered through those few hours, right? Yeah. And there's a beautiful duality there, right? So... The reason I bring that up is, one, that's kind of one of the central themes of that project, and the second song is called Dawn Patrol. Uh, and, and two, I think this space is like that all the time, right? It's trying to see both sides of something, trying yeah. to see the employee's side who feels like they're getting taken advantage of, but also trying to see the financial institution side sure. who feels like they don't have another choice, mm-hmm. right? And saying how can I truly empathize with each of the different perspectives to understand the shade of gray that this particular thing is yeah. and then do the right thing for that as opposed to some overly simplified view of the world is black and white. Yeah. So kind of an all over the place answer, but uh, <laughs> that's the truth. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. And it really, it is the case because what I have had to explain to friends of mine when I say I'm involved in financial services and I have this podcast <laughs> So many of them want to go, oh, banks are evil, financial services are great. And I say to them, look, you haven't met and talked to the people I have talked to and people like you, right, that are very passionate about what they're doing and they want to make this difference. And I think to get to that point where you're talking about it's about understanding and to understand truly you have to be open and to be open you need to be empty and that's how you receive inspiration and ideas i believe that as a musician and some of the smartest people i have met in financial services they will tell me things like i don't even know exactly how but it was like the idea came to me or it hit me yeah or when i interviewed one of the co-founders of warby parker he said i didn't plan to go into the eyeglass business i broke my eyeglasses when i was backpacking in thailand and i came home and tried to replace them and they said six hundred dollars i'm like i don't have six hundred dollars and he identified a pain point yeah and a lot of times the flip side to a pain point is an enlightenment yeah and it sounds duality like yes duality <laughs> there you go well, fabulous that you've been on the podcast, and I yeah, would ask where we me. could find your music, but it sounds like it hasn't quite come out yet. Yeah, I'll let you know next spring. But promise me you'll come back on the podcast, and we can play some of the songs for people. A hundred percent. And uh, yeah, maybe I'll just show you one of those demos right after we turn this off. Oh, we're gonna we're <laughs> gonna do it. We're gonna do it. Ahan Sarkar is the general manager of Helix, a banking as a service company. He is based in Los Angeles, California. You can look for Ahan on LinkedIn.
Thanks again for tuning in to Bankadelic Live from Money 2020 in Las Vegas. We hope you are enjoying this series of special episodes and encourage you to go over to SoundCloud to check out the entire Bankadelic archive. Thanks again to the William Mills Agency for their generous support. On-site production in Las Vegas provided by yours truly and Scott Mills. Special thanks also to Banker Hire and Lemonade LXP as well as our good friends Dave Wallace and Darmesh Mystery of Dave and Darm Demystify. I'm Lou Carlozo, and as my good friend and associate Johnny DeBig would say, What happens at Money 2020 in Vegas stays at Money 2020 in Vegas. Capiche? Until next time, so long. Bankadelic is a production of NMD+, London, Chicago, and Austin, Texas.